Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Activist Lawyer. Jack's in the studio with me. Hello everyone. On this fine, summery, miserly day in Newry. And I am delighted to be joined by David Renton via Zoom. Hi David. Hello, lovely to see you. I'm, I'm in London where it's a bit brighter and sunnier, oh, I guess. It's, it's always warmer, brighter yeah. in London, yeah, isn't no. it? <laughs> oh, well, great to have you here. So just by way of introduction, David has been a barrister at Garden Court Chambers since 2010 and has represented clients in some of the leading employment and housing cases of the past decade. His cases have been at the cutting edge of trade union law, anti-union discrimination and the protection of free speech. David was a visiting professor in sociology at Johannesburg University and for several years a national equality official of the University and Colleges Union. David's the author of more than 20 books in history, social and legal theory, which have been translated into a dozen different languages. He's now working on a project which addresses why the law has come to absorb areas of political controversy, how projects to roll back the expansion of the law can end up entrenching class and social power, and whether social movements should work with or against the law. He also writes regularly for The Guardian and London Review of Books and also has a book just out recently, which we're going to uh, get into throughout this podcast. But before we get um, into the nitty gritty of things, and I think there's a lot there uh, to get through and very, very thematic and relevant. um, David, you might just give us a little bit of a background about yourself and your journey into law and your career so far. (laughs) Well, listen, thanks so much, Sharon. It's a real pleasure to be on here. Um, in terms of my background, it, it's kind of simple. I never wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I got past the age of 30 before I had any legal qualifications at all. Um, I came to it through a kind of different route, which was essentially I um, completed my undergraduate. I went straight into a PhD. I went straight from there to teaching in universities. Um, I think I was like 25 in a university in northwest England. Uh, in my first week, first sort of full-time job, and some, I went along to the union meeting, and the hat goes around, who's going to be the branch secretary for the union um, this year? And to my foolishness, well, it can't be a bad thing to do, can it, surely? Um, put myself forward. I was then a um, just a uh, branch secretary for, for my trade union for a couple of years. At the end of it, um, we went through several rounds of redundancies. Uh, the last round of redundancy was one redundancy, and that was me. <laughs> Um, so that was um, that was quite an experience, and then I came from that to working for the union, UCU, the lecturers' union, which um, I was doing full time by maybe I was twenty seven, twenty eight, and then I worked did that for three or four years, and then um, it just seemed obvious to me that um, I loved what the union was doing, I wanted the union to win, but in practice, all the things which mattered to us, like I don't know. Um, the issue of lots of lecturers being on very short-term contracts mm-hmm. and much worse paid, and that predominantly affecting women lecturers. That was a huge strategic issue for us. And we had no plans whatsoever to defeat it, except through litigation. Mm-hmm. So it just became really, really clear that if I wanted to change the law, what the union was actually hoping people would do would go off, provide skills, mm-hmm. learn how to do it, and then try and fight here. So that, that's, when, that's basically why, why I moved up. 
Oh, wow. And in terms of then, I mean, you're not just representing clients and being involved in um, quite high profile cases that maybe we'll discuss if we can. But in terms of, um, I guess, a lot of your work there is very unique in terms of research and you, you're widely published as well. We might just start off um, with talking about your recent publication. Um, if you want to let us know a little bit about that um, against the law. Yeah, sure. Um, essentially, um, you, when you read out my biography, it, it spoke again that I was, the last few sentences talking about the project I was involved in. Well, this is the project. Uh-huh. It's a, it's a book. Um, just just trying to um, trying to ask, I think, some quite big questions about how how do we use the law? What's the right amount of law from the point of view of social movement? Um, obviously, a lot of the stuff I had in my head when I was writing it was the government's current attack on people using the law as a shield against what feels like um, the government becoming slowly more authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's not just in Britain seeing the same things in France, in America, in Hungary, in lots of different places. So people are using the law as a response. Now, what the government says back is, aha, that's terrible. There's, there's all these activists doing these um, political interventions in the law. And, um, you know, they've had some, the government's had some success, I think, in terms of persuading the senior judiciary. This is just, this isn't how the law should be used. Sure. But, but really, I suppose what I'm saying is, you know, is it actually true that campaigns are using the law more than they used to? Probably it is true. And is this, let us side whatever the government's saying about it, just purely from our perspective, is this actually what we should be doing? And should we be trying to think about other forms of social power mm-hmm. which might get us the victories we want, including maybe even legal victories? Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes you get those actually through um, protests outside rather than necessarily just through litigation. Sure. And one of the themes there that I, I did mention, which really stands out to me, is whether social movements should work with or against the law. And we slightly covered this a little bit with previous guests that I, I or perhaps, um, you know, following a similar route to yourself and would have had a lot of association with uh, grassroots movements and the trade unions leading them, you know, to a career in law. But I mean, what's the answer to that? Or is that something that, you know, um, you know, you're still working on in terms of research? You know, how important is it for social movements to affect change through law? Well, I, I think part of the answer has got to be specific, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain groups of people who, who realistically, they're never going to have an enormous amount of social power, mm-hmm. even if they organise collectively. Um, and practice law might well be the best they can do, yeah? Mm-hmm. So, so I'm not by any means saying everyone now give up on law immediately. Yeah. But I'm saying that for larger social movements, I'm saying things which do have that social power, um, you don't need to litigate, or you don't need to um, take treat litigation central. And if I just could, like, this is just purely an anecdote, yeah? Mm-hmm. Just one example. Um, there are lots of stories in the book which are more developed than this, which is one that occurred to me while you were asking the question. Um, about, between about 10 and 5 years ago, I was effectively in-house counsel to a protest movement called the Blacklist Support Group. Mm-hmm. And there were a group of um, blacklisted construction workers who, um, who, who, who had been spied on by um, a private organisation called the Consulting Association, it had gathered the names of trade unionists and had given them to employers so that people wouldn't get a job. And no one, the, the blacklist had been secret, so mm-hmm. people didn't know um, that their names were on the blacklist. And then eventually they did, and eventually they tried to serve it. And I think of the 51 cases, maybe one succeeded. Um, and I did a number of the cases for them, and like 
48 lost. I mean, I think, you know, of the two or three that stayed in the system longest, I had two of the three that stayed longest, but, you know, overall we lost. But, but one of the cases I really remember doing was on Crossrail, which is now the Elizabeth one, which just opened in London and had loads of fanfare. So it's opened this year. And it's about this um, electrician called Frank. And we we were absolutely convinced he'd been blacklisted. And it, his wasn't historic blacklisting. This was going on right now. And we knew it because okay. the um, subcontracting site admitted it was going on. Despite that, when we went to court, um, just it was like impossible. Everything the employers argued, they won. It didn't matter which barristers we had in court. We just lost and lost and lost. And eventually the case got dismissed. And it was just going nowhere. About three months later, the employer rings up and says, we're willing to settle. We're going, well, why, why are you even offering to settle? You've won. And then we'll give him the job back and we'll give a sum of money. But let's say it was a large enough sum of money that, that my chin dropped and hit the tape. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, how on earth have they done? They've already won the case. Yeah. Why on earth did they want to settle? And the truth was they weren't remotely interested in settling the case. What they were interested in was settling these bloody blacklisted workers, electricians right. and similar, who were going along to meetings of the employer's body, standing outside huge and places with plastic rats, <laughs> saying, you building bosses are absolute rogues. What you've done with blacklisting is absolutely offensive. And, we just, and that's what actually what they wanted to settle. They used the fact we had this dormant case, which is a way of making peace with the social movement. And sometimes in life, actually, protests, involvement on the street, turning out the numbers, those sorts of things, um, what trade unions tend to call leverage, is actually far more effective at getting a result for, you, for the person you're representing than thinking, we'll go along and we'll do it all in court. Okay. And currently, how do you see that working at the moment? I know um, at the time of recording this, this will go out a bit later, but we are still... Um, you know, looking at the state of affairs in the UK with strikes in terms of um, workers, um, real workers, and um, the whole concept of trade unions has come alive again. But it seems to me that, um, you know, the the meaning behind what they're doing, strikes, pickets, etc., is almost lost. And it's almost as though it's part of a bygone era, even when the media are covering it, they don't seem to understand the purpose or point. And I know that's why we have people now like Mick Lynch, for example, who has become yeah. you know quite an well icon, known, an icon over the last <laughs> few weeks. But having to explain um, trade union law, employment law and its effectiveness and what this actually means, because it just seems to people that this is so alien that we have to, you know, have workers strike. So what's happening now? You know, what's in, in terms of just across the UK, how is this um, playing out at the moment in terms of, you know, your work on trade union law and um, how do we get to this stage and what can be done about it? And, you know, it's does it seem alien in this day and age to have these strikes? Well, you're, you're definitely right. I mean, if, if you look at the figures in history, I don't have them to hand, but it's something like between... 1889 and 1989, um, the average number of strikes every year in Britain is about 2 million per year. Mm-hmm. And since that time until the last couple of years, I think it's never been much above 100,000. Mm-hmm. So strikes and volume of strikes have fallen by, um, what's that, 1920, so that's um, 95%. Mm-hmm. And that, okay. that, I'm not talking just Britain now compared to big strikes, I'm talking about Britain compared to the entire 100 years beforehand. Sure. Quiet days quiet years, exciting years, whatever, mm-hmm. we're still 95% down on all of that. So, so trade unions are recovering from an incredibly low base. But but again, uh, this isn't really a legal answer, but I think one of the reasons why it feels like trade unions have suddenly 
become much more central to this again is remember we're in a high high inflation economy. Yeah. And so the things which people have to consider in their workplace is how do you protect your your wages? If inflation's going up by ten percent, if gas and electricity prices going up by more than that, actually there's very few legal mechanisms by which you can can keep your wages up. Almost inevitably, you have to start considering things like strike action or, or forms of collective protest like that, because there's no court that's going to turn around and give you a ten percent pay rise. You need just to keep your pay in real terms where it's at. Mm-hmm. Now that's different. Um, from what unions have been trying to do for most of the last 40 years, which isn't to try and increase wages, but just to stop people being sat. If you want to stop people being sat, there's, there's very widely developed legal remedies on fair dismissal. And you can bring that to the court. So I think one of the reasons why it's changed, I, I appreciate this isn't really something that everyone talks about, but I think it's literally the things unions have been trying to do for the last 30, 40 years, it's felt to people like the only way of getting them is by going to court. Mm-hmm. Whereas right now, the things people need to do, actually, it's almost impossible to get that from court. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of why we're seeing um, that, that seeming rebirth of trade union activism. It's not just about the RMC. I mean, made a list of all the people who are on strike this year. It's yeah. junior doctors, it's sure. um, it's, it's barristers. barristers. It's so we're in really um, testing times and of course all of this comes in the back of the B word Brexit and I know you couldn't written couldn't have written a book against the law without mentioning that and the rise of um, populism in the UK but as we mentioned just before recording that that's across the board France and I mean we've seen how the, the rise in right wing um, kind of politics has been documented and this word has been used by yourself as well, that this exploits a certain kind of a promise of de-juridification. Um, for example, this whole concept of taking back control, you know, and yeah. you mentioned as well about the anti-protest laws. I mean, we can also, we've talk, spoken about here, the, um, the government's attempt to stop judicial review as a legal mechanism. I mean, it's quite worrying, a worrying time in history, isn't it, for, for lawyers and I suppose people who need access to justice? Well, it, well, it definitely, but I, but I also think that sort of resisting that and kind of responding to it in a way which, which turns things around, I think a lot of it starts from just trying to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. If at least you know what's going on, then then you might, then what you, your, your campaigns might be more effective. I'd hope. Um, you, you talked about the slogan "Take Back Control," and I think you're right that it was the central slogan of Brexit. And one thing I try and do in the book is trying to think quite slowly and carefully about what that really meant, mm-hmm. because it, people just turn and say, "Oh, it's you know, it's just nonsense. It's what politician says," and ignore it. So I don't think you understand why Brexit, which you know was initially the minority cause, it had all sorts of people against it, had the government against it, effectively. Yeah. So. In terms of winning the referendum, there must have been some cause they struck with ordinary voters. Let's try and work thinking what that was. And I, I think if you listen carefully to that slogan, take back control, what, what it's really saying to people is, um, in your life, more and more decisions are taken out of your hand and they're taken into this realm of experts in the law, which you've got no control over whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those experts, you know, some of that, those people who, who have all the control, which you need to bring back. The problem with them is they're abroad. And because they're abroad, you can't influence them. Mm-hmm. Even if you elect your own politicians, because they're only like one set of politicians in the 40 countries in Europe, I mean, they can't influence the eyes. So the idea was that by taking back control in effect, it was take back certain laws, principally laws around workplace, laws around environment, 
bring them back to their controlled by domestic politicians, then you elect them, so you have control of them, they have control of law. Mm-hmm. Now, some things I'm saying in the book, I suppose, is that although it's horrible to see the right use ideas like that, and completely cynic, you know, there's, there's been no decrease to the law. There's no sense in which people have more control in their lives than they did five or ten years ago. So we can say that's a cynical and opportunist and whatever. But it is worth maybe saying that this idea that the law and bureaucracy, etc., feel alien to people because don't feel maybe that is actually how lots of people experience in life. You know, a lot of questions I, I kind of ask, and they're questions about the law. It's, you know, do you know what's in your employment contract? Yeah. Do you know what rights aren't in your employment contract that you can afford? Do you know what's in your tenancy agreement? Do you know what's in your mortgage agreement? Last time you were online and you had a box come up saying, do you agree to standard conditions? Did you read them? If you had read them, could you have understood them? Do you think you could have? And there's this sense in all of our lives that, like, actually, we are getting out of control. So if we could turn that instinct back and use it as a way of people having more control in their lives, that, that would actually be much better all around. Absolutely. And I guess that's probably, you know, addressed in your book. Um, yeah, and one of, the, one of the main questions that your book sought to answer was why we need fewer laws. So if you could, in if you can even do it in brief fewer terms. Laws. Yeah, yeah. If you can ex- explain it to the listeners and us as well. Do we need fewer laws in the UK? Yeah, sure. Look, look there's, there's two points there. When I, when I talk about fewer laws, I'm, I mean, some of what I'm saying is just simple laws. And some of what I'm saying is there's certain areas of life which the law, actually people could do better if the law was slightly pulled away from. Mm. So if I take those two separately, that's right, just firstly fewer laws, yeah? One of the things which makes it really difficult to understand life, employment, housing, immigration, benefits, anything, is just the complexity of the systems that we deal with. Um, I'm a housing lawyer. Um, if I have to list to you all the number of different kinds of tenancies the person could be living in, Secure tenancies, introductory tenancies, the most tenancies, property guardianship tenancies, student tenancies, asylum tenancies. Honestly, yeah. if I listed all of them, it'd take me about three minutes. So when someone comes across my door and knocks on the door and says, right, you know, I've got a possession order made against me. Do I have to leave my home? Very, very often for me, it's something which I need to think about two or three hours to get the answer. Mm. Um, and it's also the same for judges too. One of the things that I've quite noticed is lots of judges complaining that loathing immigration of this yeah. horrible complexity. <laughs> we hear it. Yeah. And, and, and the truth is, number one, if laws were simpler, we'd all understand them better. Mm-hmm. If, if, say, a politician is saying, all right, I want to increase the minimum wage or I want to, whatever the proposal is, we would know exactly what it meant. We'd know much better yeah. what it meant if laws were simpler and easier. The first simple thing is just, even if you don't change anything else about the law, just make it simpler and mm-hmm. easier for people. But the second thing I'm saying is, is that there are areas of life where if you could pull the law out of it, and actually maybe people who don't have a lot of power and don't have a lot of whatever would actually have a stronger bargain power. And that can't be something you do from above. To some extent, they have to do it themselves. But the obvious example is, is and, and it's something we've already been going at through this interview a bit, is employment law. Now, if you go back 50, 60 years to that epoch in British history where unions were a lot stronger, Mm-hmm. The practical reality is, is that unions, you know, workers in trade unions had relatively now much higher incomes as a percentage of total income, and they were much more likely to stay in their jobs if their employers tried to sack them. We, we, we can get some stats from this. You, you can look at when people were sacked in the 60s and they complained and they asked employers for their job back. 
-hmm. And everything we can tell is essentially, they asked for their job back, essentially about a third of the time they got their job back. Right now, if you go to some time tribunal, if you bring your case for unfair dismissal, if you win, essentially, um, one in a thousand unfair dismissal claims that make it to a final hearing ends in order for reinstatement or re-engagement. Mm. So, juridifying Love the it. idea of making all these things subject to the law hasn't done what it was supposed to. It hasn't led to people actually getting a better chance in their job. It's led to much worse chance. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, I'm not just talking about employment. I'm saying that similar approach might apply to quite a lot of other social movements. Yeah. So it might apply to housing. Well, definitely applies to immigration when you think about it. The complexity of the immigration rules, it goes for what a number of reviews, appeals, and essentially the person ends up normally staying here yeah. anyway because it's unlikely that they'll be deported or removed. You know, the figures will speak to that. So it's they, their lawyers, any people representing them go through a huge um, kind of process of complex rules involving perhaps two judges. And in the end, they're protected anyway yeah it's contradictory um, to its purpose really because... so, yeah but one of your former guests wrote something on, on his free movement of colin Yo mm -hmm. just in the last couple of weeks and i read it and it it, it, it was just brilliant because i read it but I, I don't do immigration law mm -hmm. sometimes i do say employment or housing cases with a bit of immigration law yes. it, but i'm not an immigration lawyer but he wrote this thing and it just it took my breath away because it just mm -hmm. explained so much yeah he said if you look at what's actually happening in terms of decisions, right now, 80 or 90% of people who apply for refugee status essentially end up getting leave to remain either through an initial decision or through an appeal. Yeah. But we still have a legal system that's based on like the press rhetoric of the early 90s about bogus asylum. Mm -hmm. so you've got to deal with all this imagined possibility of false, false claims. <laughs> and there's a vast construction of a whole legal apparatus to stop something yeah. that isn't actually a social problem at all. Yeah. And as a non-immigration, I went, okay, yeah. right, that's really smart. Now I understand what you guys are dealing with. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly frustrating. It's actually shocking, even for us, that you know, we're used to it and we know what to expect. But I work between the two jurisdictions, Ireland and the UK, and I have to say the difference is stark in terms of the complexity of rules. I'm not even going to say laws, but rules and policies that change weekly mm -hmm. that we have to keep up with compared to in Ireland where a lot of it is policy based and enshrined in legislation that's been interpreted you know by the courts over time but yes uh, de-jurification of, of the law in immigration it's shrinking the law it, shrinking the law is perfectly fine it would be um, very much welcome in immigration along with everything else but um that's that's so so interesting and I mean as you're right it can cover any a aspects of um, society and I guess um, I suppose it's not something I mean you've just brought it up um, quite, and you know you're a barrister you're not necessarily specialising in criminal law but just in terms of it's quite shocking um, when people who don't work in in law and have a preconception that barristers are so highly paid um, to hear that junior barristers in the UK are earning less than £12,000 a year in many cases. Now, I know that's not your area either, but um, I'd be interested in, interested in hearing your thoughts on that and the strikes and, you know, are they going to get anywhere with this, do you think? Well, well I really hope they are because, I mean, again, it's kind of interesting because if you put 100 barristers in a room and you say to them, here's an issue, solve it, the mm -hmm. first thing 
all the barristers will do that, 100 people do it, suddenly you'll get 85 clever ideas for how you can take it to court. Mm-hmm. You know, could you run this as a judicial review? How mm-hmm. bad if we do this? How about... And what's really striking, I'm, I'm not a criminal barrister, so, so obviously I've got criminal barristers in my chain, there's lots of friends, but I'm not. But mm-hmm. the thing that I find really fascinating about them is that they haven't been looking for a super smart legal remedy, even though that's what they're all good at. Yeah. They said, no, what they need to do is actually try and treat it like an industrial issue and reduce mm-hmm. their labor, and that's how they'll have the most amount of power. Um, as for whether they'll win, um, I don't know. Um, and look, I, re- I really hope they do. I- I've mm-hmm. got, I'm a civil legal aid barrister, and I do housing law, and we get paid an, an hourly rate of about £60 an hour, which hasn't gone up since 1981. Oh. It's not just it hasn't gone up, it's actually 50 of what it was in 1981 oh so no, no not talking about real I'm talking about actual we've had a 50 cent actual pay cut we've had no pay rise in 40 years so it would be great for us if they could change what happens with civil legal aid to and and you know it's very hard to organize civil legal aid barristers much harder than criminal legal aid barristers we, we we don't have the option of all being together collectively but mm-hmm. i mean the only other thing to say is, is that there really is something extraordinary extraordinary go on the criminal court. I'm not enough of insiders to say a lot about it. But essentially the idea that we've accepted this backlog in the criminal law system where cases, um, the average time to, to get a case trial now is about 18 months. Um, and sometimes it's much, much longer. Basically, barristers saying we're fed up with all the cuts, we're fed up with the cuts of defense, we're even fed up with the cuts of the prosecution, frankly. Mm. And you have to stop that one. That, that, and you, you cannot have a justice system where, where even from the point of view of thinking about the people who are the witnesses to crime or the victims of crime, mm-hmm. if you turn around and say, you know, you go along to the police and it may be two, three years later and you're still waiting for court date, that's just, as a society, that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, that all those different cuts have to be reversed. The one that they've got the power to change is the one which they're going at. But what I do think... Um, all my senses are is the government doesn't like that that movement and is is slightly inclined to try and see if it can do deal with it because they don't like that message getting out into no. the public. There's a reason why criminals are walking around free and it's your incompetence, it's your false penny pinching, it's your prioritisation of the wrong things and they don't want that message to get out. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's not the activist lawyers and the lefty lawyers. I know, I'm surprised that hasn't <laughs> been... Uh, yeah. been put out in in the media yet um but david obviously when you you spoke there about the beginning of your career and how you didn't have a legal qualification un- until you were 30 I, I think a lot of people these days um will be maybe coming into university quite late would you have any tips or advice for anybody coming into into the law later in life um if you got any advice for them I don't think I can say anything much more than, you know, like believe in yourself and understand that um, actually, you know, as far as the chamber, I, I, I very often do the recruitment for, for our chambers. Um, and we are looking for people at any stage of life and we want people with experience. Mm. And we know that the relevant experience may well not be in the law. Um, you, you know, um, I'll, I'll try and explain why and I'll try and give some examples. First of all, just why, yeah? Um, Someone might be have the most brilliant academics and they might have gone through university at some quadruple quick speed. But to survive 
as a lawyer, you, you have to have skills in terms of dealing with really stressful, intense situations. And very often, there isn't that much you can do through the law, but there's an awful lot you can do by listening patiently, taking the extra care to really try and understand, and, and being sometimes just being a shoulder that people can cry on a bit. Mm. Often, if you want your client to win, often if you want your client to exit a case of dignity, and both of those can be good results, you need that extra heft which comes with having been around a bit longer. And, you know, um, it is extraordinary the people who, who want to um, apply to some barristers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I look at people's applications. We, we get them changed. We, we've got six places and we get six or 700 people apply each year. And it's really brutal if you go through whittling it down. But I can tell you about some people we've put through to interviews. You know, we put through, um, which is one story, you know, we're a very lucky change. If we do represent people who've been um, in wars, for example, probably they're the victims of torture or killing at the hands of the state. They probably aren't going to, we probably aren't going to be for the state in that situation. Mm. But I remember the last one recruitment round, we had some um, come in, they put in their CV, and their CV said that she had been um, the commander of a frigate in the British Navy, and she'd had like 400 people working under her command. And then she'd gone off and done a Lord, Lord degree, and she was only like midway through the conversion process. I was like, yeah, of course we could. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because yeah. so much of the job actually, you know, is about can you deal with those sorts of tough situations? Sure. And being able to pull out the right case helps, but it's not the only thing that can get you through that situation. Mm-hmm. And just in today's discussion, it's so interesting to hear you talk about maybe turning some of the negative attempts by the government to, you know, um, uh, change. I mean, anti-protest laws was one thing that we mentioned, but there's a chain of attempts that they've done over the the course of the last few years to turn that on its head and maybe, you know, take ownership of that and use it in our advantage as lawyers, but also for our clients. But on that note, I guess our question that we ask all of our guests is about activism and using um, the law you know to make effective change which you have touched on and it's been really fitting that you are, are here today in this podcast because it's actually what you know we, we set out to do mm-hmm. initially yeah. but just an, uh, as final thoughts I guess for our, our listeners um, I mean how effective is activism in the law and I mean you know how do we use it to our best advantage um Okay, well, the first was just to, to get the sense that it's there, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's there and often in surprising places. You know, um, when I started off as a barrister, um, I used to go down to court in East London and there was a housing judge and I knew a bit about his background for whatever reason, through, mm-hmm. through mutual friends or lawyers. Um, and, you know, um, I knew that, that, for example, that she killed, she called her sons who were, you know, about to leave school called them when they're young, she called them Fidel and Shay. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so the activist lawyer mm. who, who you might think of this sort of 20-year-old radical, they might mm. also be someone who's 30, who's 40, yeah. who's now in a different place in the legal system. That happens sure. too. Um, and, and I suppose it's just, it's, it's like knowing that it's there, giving it a chance to breathe, giving it a chance to, to, to express itself. And, you know, when, when I started off as a barrister, I, I, I kind of went through a period where it felt to me like every judge I came across was like something out of Rumpole um, sketch from the 70s. You know, they were all these crusty old men and yes. they were, oh, this is very serious. <laughs> but then they actually realized that, 
they're not. Now, none of this is to say that the law is potentially pro-worker rather than pro-boss, um, pro-landlord, pro-tenant rather than pro-landlord. In all sorts of ways, it's, it's institutional bias, biases there. But at every point, there are people trying to do their best and trying to fight back. And if you give them a chance, then in your case, they might help you to make the difference. Brilliant. So your book, Against the Law, the full title, which I will get right this time, Why Justice Requires Fewer Laws and a Smaller State, I, will be absolutely intriguing. And yep. I mean, we I guess we just scratched the surface today. Um, I look forward to reading that in full. Is that that's currently out and available, David? Yeah, you can, you can order it online now. Um, it's not actually going to be published for like another 10 days or so. But you can pre-order it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it, it will come pretty soon. Fantastic. Well, we will share the link to that. Definitely. And look forward to, um, I guess, having you back on again at some point because I feel like there's so much that so we could discuss that we, we areas, haven't yeah. had time to. But um, thank you so much for joining uh, how, us. How, how about this, yeah? Hmm. When when the government has the um, protest bill, um, or once by then probably not, once the first time it gets struck out um, in, in a court and found to be contrary to basic rights of whatever sort, yeah. And get me on for that. How we'll about that? On. We'll get you on. You're, you're the, the man to you're the VIP yeah. for that. Um, so yeah, well, thank you again for joining us, and everybody, uh, tune in next week for the next episode of Activist Lawyer. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.